My best advice is the advice that I took myself, was do as much as you can as early in your career as possible because then you figure out what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. It is self-awareness. Self-awareness happens through experiences. Welcome to Conversations with Connors, a NetworkWise podcast, and I'm your host, Adam Connors. NetworkWise trains and educates individuals and organizations in the science and art of networking to accelerate sales, personal development, and career opportunities. In Conversations with Connors, I talk with a variety of highly successful individuals in order to gain insights on how they built, maintained, and cultivated their relationships in order to live a life by design, not by default. My next guest is someone that I've been looking forward to having on the show for quite some time now. As you will see, he's a bit of a trailblazer and ahead of his time, but probably best described as a student teacher. He got his first job at the age of 13, and by the time he was in his 20s, he was doing big things at EMC, including creating the company's first ever social media position. Now, he's revolutionizing the HR industry in his role as a managing partner at Workplace Intelligence. But throughout all of his experiences, despite providing an extreme amount of value to various companies, he has continued to learn from others and apply his new, ever-increasing knowledge moving forward. To this day, Dan Chabelle, a New York Times best-selling author of three books, continues to be an astute student of the world while still providing world-class insight to others whether it's through his writings or his podcast, Five Questions with Dan Chabelle. I'm extremely fortunate to share with you his incredible insights, which will be valuable to people at all stages of their professional careers. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with the extremely bright and articulate Dan Chabelle. So I've been looking forward to this conversation for a variety of reasons. You've got a really cool background, and you've done a lot of really interesting things. So uh, welcome to the show, my So friend. happy to be here with you, Adam. Yeah, yeah, me too. We're yeah. going to have some fun. We're going to learn all about you. We're going to learn about some missions that you're on, what you're about. And uh, hopefully you can educate not just myself, but uh, those that are listening. I'd be more than happy to. Awesome. So why don't you tell us a little bit, give us the, uh, you know, give us the elevator pitch on, on who we're listening to today. Yeah, I have always been somebody who is naturally curious about the world. And as someone who is young, I was kind of exploring what it meant to work. So at after age 13, my parents were like, we want you to get a job. And that was some of the best you know, advice and, and the big, biggest push that I have gotten early in my life. Because you don't understand the world unless you experience it. You don't know what it means to work and the responsibility and how to interact with people unless you're put into those situations. So my first job was working as a caterer in my temple and I had to deal with very difficult people, right? I was doing Shabbats, I was doing weddings and bar mitzvahs and so anything that would go wrong, you know, I would get ordered around to do things, clean up or set up or cook and that was very helpful looking back. I think that everyone should have a service job because the most valuable skill in today's world and in, in, in the future and even in the past is interacting with people and, and getting along with them and just understanding them. So having a level of empathy, um, having a, a level of appreciation for your coworkers. So other people that were working with me, understanding what they were going through. And you can better understand people if you've been there. It's almost like I was never a waiter at, at any restaurants or a bartender, but a lot of my friends were. And you can see now in their adulthood how they interact with them, right? Like they'll, they're more likely to tip bartenders. They're more likely to tip waiters and waitresses because they knew what that was like. And so when people, you know, wait at me in restaurants or I see like maybe like a janitor cleaning up, I can kind of connect with them at some level because I did what they did, at, you know, back when I was growing up. And same with like, um, you know, I just did a Jewish adult overnight camp uh, this past Labor Day. And I went to camp when I was, you know, a kid, you know, teenager for seven years. And I was a counselor and I had nine-year-olds, right? And it's just really interesting to look back 
being an adult camp from and comparing that to being a kid and and everything being very rigid to everything being flexible and having more freedom and just to compare and contrast you know where you are now with where you've been and also when I was growing up I was always a troublemaker I was on the principal's bench in elementary school every single day and had a horrible reputation I wasn't even allowed at kids homes because their parents wouldn't let me over and now it's like I've done a lot more than most kids I grew up with and so they say they look at me as the role model so it's really fascinating how things have changed and I think a lot of that has to do with kind of almost rebelling against my youth and saying you know that model clearly doesn't work and is is uh, not sustainable and you know with some help from my parents and therapists and, and a support system I was able to overcome some of those early challenges in my life and as a result through hard work and the work ethic that was instilled in me from my grandfather my father seeing you know his brother my uncle as a role model that really pushed me to be more and almost prove everyone else wrong but also at the same time kind of getting validation for this this new life I wanted to create and then as my, as you know my life progressed it was always about trying the next thing and, and just seeing what was possible because you don't know what's possible for yourself you don't know your potential until until you start actually living it and so in middle school and then especially in high school I started working more I had my first internship senior year of high school I had seven more in college I had my first business sophomore year of college. It was doing website design and, and development for small businesses in Massachusetts, where I was from. And to even get into a, a good college was really hard. Like I got deferred from early decision. I really wanted to go to a school named Bentley University. It was Bentley College back then. And, I, and it was very hard for me to get in. And that was, a, that was a good lesson because it showed that nothing just comes easy. You have to really earn it. So the fact that I didn't get in early decision made me want to work that much harder. So I interviewed on campus. I wrote admissions a letter. I got straight A's my last semester of high school. It pushed me to work that much harder and taught me a great lesson that nothing comes easy. You have to work for it. And then it's been that mentality ever since. So when I graduated college, my first job out of school was at EMC. But to get that job, even with a two-page resume and you know being fully qualified, I had to meet 15 people for three jobs over eight months. For, for your first job? For my first job. And I was... I did so great in, in that company, but I, it really did not come easy. It was very hard to get a job there. And again, it washed away my entitlement. Mm. The entitlement side of you is like, oh, I deserve this. Of course, they're going to hire me. And then when you don't get hired, you're like, okay, there is no entitlement. I still have to earn this. And so I've always had this earn this mentality. I've always been like, at first you don't succeed, build your profile so that they can't say no next time. And if they say no next time, then build it even more and keep building and building and building and building. So that was how I internalized it. Like when I got an internship at Reebok in college, it took me a year and a half to get it. And when I didn't get it the first time, I'm like, okay, how do I campaign to get in the next time? So I call it campaigning. So I was like, okay, who do I need to meet? I got to get a reference from this. You know, uh, my fraternity brother's sister works at Reebok. Let me go all angles. And then I finally get there. And this has really been the story of my life. When I got my job at EMC, though, the thing that really hit me that changed how I look at the world was during my last set of interviews, they were looking at my resume and I had worked at Reebok, Lycos, Lojack, Tech Target, and then companies you've never heard of before. And the, I think his name was David, his eyes looked down my resume and they stopped at Reebok. Now at Reebok, it was the summer where Adidas bought them, which most people don't know of. And I did like no work for that company. Like, I think I got course credit, but, you know, I was an admin under a director that really didn't pay attention to me. So I really didn't get much experience. But everyone knows what Reebok is. And so he really was keen on Reebok. And when that happened, I was like, wow, brands open doors. I need to align myself with as many brands as possible throughout the rest of my life. Like, it gave me a real appreciation for branding so because proof. he cared about that. And then in my head, I'm like, okay, so brands are important. Brands open doors. I need to align myself with brands. I need to brand myself by association. If you haven't heard of me, but you've heard of a brand I'm associated with, you're more likely to trust me. And so I've always had that mentality. So if you look at my bio and everything I've done, it's all around branding. It, you'll always see names because of that one idea, but that one situation back, you know, over a decade ago. And then from there, starting at EMC, the smartest thing I did there was, you know, in my first year in product man or marketing, you know, everyone was tasked with creating a marketing plan 
And that was a skill set I had. I did like marketing plans for Lojack and other small companies and right, where I grew up. And so I offered to do everyone's marketing plan in the whole group, which is, I don't know, let's say it was a thousand hours of work or something. <laughs> no, I didn't, I didn't put in the full thousand hours, but I did enough of the work for everyone that they appreciated me and it was the best job security you could have. It's how I built relationships in the whole marketing department at the company. Did I think that by helping everyone with their marketing plan, it would lead to that outcome? No, I just knew that if you add value to people's lives without asking for anything in return, they're going to want to support your career. And that was something I learned early. Whereas more so in college, it was about handing out business cards. I realized that people will remember you and appreciate you and want to support you if you've given wholeheartedly to them, giving something of value, saved them time, saved them money, made them money, doing something that they won't forget. And I think that that really helped me looking back because it gained, I gained a network, I gained confidence so I could continue to build my career at the company, even though it was such a large company. You know, back then, before Dell acquired them, it was like 40,000 employees. Wow. So where do I begin unpacking so many things that you talked about? I wish I had a pen and I was writing things down. I mean, um, we could just unpack each and every like topic that you discussed, whether it's the engagement at an early age. Uh, let's actually talk about that because one of the things that when, when you and I first met that I that stuck out to me was a, a sense of, of self-confidence, a sense of really good, you know, good eye contact, good, you were engaging right away. And a lot of times when people first meet others, that is not the case. There is an awkwardness to them. There is an insecurity or maybe there is a bit of machismo if they're trying to overcompensate. None of that with you. You know, I mean, it's just you knew who you were the second I met you. Is that something that you've had to work on? Is that something that was natural? Or is that something that kind of came to you through, you know, the, the experiences dating back to when you were 13? We'll start there because I got a lot of other questions. Yeah, I think I'm naturally introverted, but I think the superpower of introverts that enables them to connect with others is listening. So I'm very curious about what other people have to say. And sometimes I'll leave meetings being like with other people saying, oh, I didn't even give you a chance to talk because people aren't even thinking about it till after we connect. And I think the other thing that's helped me that I talk about and back to human about why I even wrote this book that's right next to you is we're going to talk about is that, too. that <laughs> I've leveraged technology to create a bridge to more human relationships instead of letting it be a barrier between me and the people I want to connect with. So because of technology, is low, it's lowered my anxiety. It's easier for me to connect with you because you already sort of know me. I already sort of know you. So it makes it easier and it's more targeted. So it's not like random people meeting. It's people who have shared goals, shared values, shared interests. So it's easy to make those connections very quickly. Whereas if you reach out to me and you are in a totally different field and you just didn't really want to meet with me, but you were told you had to, like, it's not as strong of a connection at, you know, in, in the beginning. So it, it would take longer to unpack that and, and forge that connection. Whereas this is all, you know, filtered and thought of there's been thought going into this instead of something having to build. Let's go on that tangent a little bit because I do, I work with a bunch of people and I've got a workshop on the whole introvert and relationship building and the argument that I have, and it's not really an argument because there's science that proves it, is that actually introverts are better networkers. They, they tried and true, they are things that you just touched on, the thoughtfulness, the listening, you know, again, doing more research, if you will, ahead of a meeting. Those are the things, and, and I could keep going on and on. I want to hear from your perspective, but those are the things that the introvert is going to do. You're going to think about like after that meeting that you had, that you were extremely actively listening, you were processing. And then I bet afterwards you thought about that a lot more, whereas opposed to the extrovert. And again, I'm generalizing the extrovert is going to be the person that just goes into it. They're not going to do the research. Um, they're going to be more apt to be the lead communicators in, in the room. And then when they walk out of the room, they're out of the room <laughs> and they're not processing and they're not thinking about things. And more often than they're not, they're not going to be the one that follows up. Whereas the introvert, i.e., you know, I think you're more of an ambivert, but, but maybe tilted towards the, towards introversion is going to do some of those other things. So if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to get your perspective. Yeah. From the outside looking in, people think I'm an extrovert as well as many of my peers, but 
we're introverts disguised as extroverts because we're public figures. So what's really fascinating is the nature of what we really do is we write and we become known for writing or for creating content. And the art of doing that, the art of being a writer, for the most part, makes you an introvert. Right? You need a lot of alone time. You need to be able to focus. You can't be around other people. You need to be in your own like writing cave. But the output of being a successful writer is speaking, is a book potentially, but speaking engagements. And when you're in the public setting, people immediately think that you're an extrovert because it takes a lot of guts and confidence to be on stage in front of people. So you're perceived as an extrovert or maybe an ambivert when in reality, you're an introvert. So you're a true introvert. Brene Brown, Simon Sinek, all introverts. Yeah. Obama. Is I bet he's an introvert too. Yeah, you, you that makes know, sense. There are a bunch of, I mean, I forgot off the top of my head, we've had a bunch of presidents that, I mean, the, the list goes on. I, I, and I want to say, and I, and I could be wrong in this, but I think it was like Oprah Winfrey is like an introvert. I, I can remember, see that. Yeah, it was something crazy. Like there was a list someone sent me, I've got it somewhere, of famed introverts. And it would, you know, blow your mind. Or maybe not. <laughs> but when it comes to networking, I look at it in, in this respect. There's the person that goes to a networking event of 100 people and is just trying to meet random people and pass out business cards, hoping that maybe something you know could happen after that event, business-wise or professionally, or maybe even a love interest. And then there's the other type of person that does not even maybe even carry business cards, but before the event, they've done research, they've narrowed down the people they want to meet into the top three to five people, and then they try and spend all of their time with those three to five people so they can actually get to know each other. Because it does, I'll just give you an example, just being with people for a weekend, an adult overnight camp, like they're good friends now because I've spent enough time getting to know them. Whereas if we're just meeting at an event, that's not enough time. You have to, you know, to, to make a new friend, it, it's, you know, like probably 50 hours of time you have to spend with them in order to have something with them that could last. And I think that's what I think about right now. It's like, you know, of course you can have a lot of acquaintances, but who are the people that you can continue to go back to and, and acknowledge and connect with? And I think it's about people being top of mind, yeah. right? So like, Maybe we can't help each other right now, but now you know of me, you you know me well enough that if something happens in six months, in five years, you might think of me. And that's why a lot of people are just trying to make quick transactions with people, whereas the real value, the real opportunities don't happen immediately. They take time to build like any relationship does. The, you know, A one night stand is not going to do much for you if you're looking for something long term, whereas something that you're constantly investing in over a long period of time, there are bigger impacts. There's a, there's a bigger relationship that's awaiting you. Yeah. Ain't that the truth? So what do you do to maintain? I mean, you've got some impressive uh, connections and relationships. What have you done throughout the course of the years to build these relationships? So, you know, how, you know, what's the skill set that you learn to be able to engage people in the first place that they're going to want to make a relationship with you? And then what have you done to kind of on the back end to keep that going? you know, to foster that relationship. Because just like when we were talking, we know a bunch of, we know a lot of the same people and, and there's some really good people there. What have you done to maintain some of those relationships? In the beginning, it was thinking about how can I be someone that would be interesting to other people, right? Because people don't want to just waste their time with people, whether that's a nice thing to say or not. It's just the reality of, of connecting with people, especially with those who are more successful than you are at that given time period. And so I think it's about, okay, how do I build a platform? Back then it was a blog. Now it's Instagram. It's a podcast. It's writing articles for major business magazines. How do I build a platform so that I can shine the light on other people? Because when you help out other people, whether it's helping them raise money, promoting their work, making a connection, an introduction between them and someone else who could benefit them. It's adding value to their lives over a long period of time. So a lot of my connections, these are this is like 12 years of me following when they have a new project up and always being there. You know, it just happened yesterday, actually. Uh, Tom Rath, who's been a connection for many, many, many years. I mean, I interviewed him first when I was I had my corporate gig and my first interview with him was outside of a deli. So I used to drive behind a deli to do my audio interviews with like Tim Ferriss and some of the some of the uh, early gurus back back when my, in my early 20s. And so it's it's having this long-term strategy and the thing that I committed to in the early days that I'm still committed to is meeting as many successful people in an industry that I care about. Mm -hmm. Because if I care about it, then I'm going to come at it in a genuine 
place, right? I'm not going to fake it. I'm, I'm one of you. And I think that's powerful. You know, when, even if I interviewed the most successful, you know, Steve Schwarzman, I sit down and I'm like, you're an author, I'm an author. Now you might be worth 17 billion and I'm not even close to that, but we're at least have both have books. So I, I've always thought about that. It's like how you might not be the richest person or the best looking person or uh, the best writer or whatnot, but if you can at least do similar things that someone else is doing, there's at least some sort of bridge there. He and so I'm always trying to make, connection. I'm trying to, I'm trying to find relatable connections as much as possible. You know, it's the reason why I want to connect with like certain people like a Ryan Reynolds who suffers from anxiety. I've suffered from anxiety. He does. He's one of X amount of celebrities that have spoken publicly about it. That interests me even far above him being a funny actor and being in great movies. That to me is, is really powerful. If, if you're not, don't just be famous for a reason. Don't just have a podcast for a reason. Just don't start a business for a reason. There needs to be an underlying purpose and thought and care because it's so much work, right? So I've been able to you know, interview over 2,200 people. I've been able to do you know dozens of research studies and, and things that I really care about because I really care about, right? And if you're not passionate about something, if you're not really excited and you don't really believe it, if you can't sell yourself on an idea, you can't sell someone else on it. Well said. Let's, let's talk about, let's actually dive into, if you don't mind, can do you mind talking about your latest book? Because I think that there's a, there's a lot to uncover. Yeah, we talked about it at lunch, about the loneliness epidemic. And I know. It, it turns out that's something I've, I've felt and written about as well. <laughs> yeah, well, talk about it. You know, there, I think there's a big education that needs to go on. And, you know, some of it's under the covers. And I think a lot of it needs to come out. It's starting to get a little more attention these days. And the UK is definitely ahead of us. Um, I'm not. I'm now calling loneliness the silent killer because we feel it but don't talk about it. So I'm hoping that this book and, and some of my writing and, and some of the research that I've done empowers people to just talk openly about it, right? What were some of the biggest eye-openers for you, whether it was some statistics or things that you just learned that maybe you thought about, but, but now it was validated, whether it's through data or just stories that you learned about? I think the biggest finding from the book was that two-thirds of us work remote. A third of us work remote often or very often, yet many are disconnected. Many are, feel isolated and lonely because they're not getting the attention and engagement that they would get if they were physically present with someone else. And that's made people want to leave their companies. So it's this whole play off the dark and the light side of working remote. The light side is the freedom and flexibility to work when, where, and how you want. But what doesn't get talked about and what the book revealed is the dark side, is that while you get that freedom and the flexibility, comes at a cost. The cost is loneliness and isolation. Yeah. Where do you see that trend going? Well, we're becoming more dispersed when it comes to the workforce. So more people working remote, working from home, working from coffee shops. And the other thing that's pretty interesting is that even if you're in an office, you can be lonely and isolated. <clears throat> like most people now, they get lunch and they eat at their desks, not with other people. So you'll appreciate this. So I had a client about uh, two years ago. Uh, as an IT firm, I don't want to say too much more, but I was brought in to speak about building relationships, networking, things that I talk about. So I do this drill where I get people to engage with other people and uh, I teach them. It's almost like a, almost like a speed dating for lack of a better way of describing it. It doesn't matter. The point is I teach people how to ha engage, how to ask certain questions, how to end conversation, blah, blah, blah. So I get a call uh, a couple weeks later from one of the, uh, partners of the firm and they, they said, Adam, I get some uh, good news and I get some bad news. I said, oh, okay. Um, give me the bad news. I said, well, I'll start with the good news because we're still not sure how to, what, what to make of this. So they said that your workshop was so good that we have two relationships that have transpired as a result of learning how to connect with people. And I said, okay. He's like, so he's like, so it's good. Obviously it worked. You know, and, uh, you know, but the bad news is we've got now two relationships, you know. So I said, all right. And, and, and then just through talking with him, I, I come, come to find out that one of the relationships that transpired was two people that worked in the same department 
in the same room. I know the room because I remember going into the room. It was probably, I don't know, maybe a thousand square feet, this room, and I'm just being generous. And they've been working together for a year and they've never talked. They never talked. They're in the same department for almost a year, never had a conversation before. And it's an open floor plan office. And that was, I mean, I just, how about that? What do you think of that? Yeah, if you have friends, especially best friends at work, you're more engaged, you're more likely to stay with the company. It makes sense. And if you have weak connections at work, you're not held down as much. Like that, that, that culture and that experience that you have at work is not as meaningful and it's not as valuable to you. Whereas if you have best friends at work and you're, you're deciding whether you want to quit your job for an extra $5,000 at another company, you, you might turn that down because friendship could be worth more than $5,000 to you. Yeah, twenty thousand could be much different, but you know, you know, everything treated equally. Having good connections and relationships in companies is valuable. And I remember I interviewed Richard Branson a few years ago, and he said if you have a lot of friends outside of your company, you should have an equal amount in the company. If you have a lot of flexibility outside the company, you should have the same amount in the company. So he makes less of a distinction between your personal and professional lives, which makes a lot of sense because everyone's kind of always working now, especially if you're an entrepreneur. And so I believe in work-life integration. It's something I talked about in the book. You know, so many people are trying to get the perfect balance, but there is no perfect balance. And you realize that when you take a step back and you just look at when you're responding to emails and phone calls and when your meetings are, it's kind of all over the place now. And so it's so important to take control of your schedule and manage your time accordingly because we all do want time for our personal activities. Yet, because a lot of us are just constantly working, especially in New York City, we can lose sight of what's actually important. And that can be to, to our detriment. So how do you, so, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying and the statistics on, you know, having a friend, how you, you'll, you'll stay around with the company seven times longer if you've got a best friend at work than if you don't, you know, and there's the monetary reasons that you'll come up with better ideas and all these other things. But why do you think that's not, we know, you and I know how important it is. We've read the research, you've written the research, <laughs> you know, um, that a lot of companies aren't in taking advantage of this knowledge. They're not embracing this. Do you think it's just they're just not seeing it or they're not educated on this yet or they're just looking at bottom line? I think it's bottom line. I think it hasn't been a priority. They haven't maybe picked up that it could be an issue and therefore it's been overlooked. And yet it happens all the way at the top too. Yeah. Like how many people at the top would say they're, you know, have great relationships with people across the company? Probably not as much. They probably are just have this big oversight and have, you know, some decent relationships with their C-suite. But after that, it's probably gets much weaker and therefore it gets harder to hold on to top people because of that. And so I think that the best leaders now are the ones that are more open. They're not judging people as much by age and gender and whatnot, and they're very empathetic, so they can feel that there's some pain in the organization and that they are personally responsible and they're going to do something about it. Being human, you know, it's it's interesting. Like, in today's world, we discuss this, too, is, is that it's funny how technology is disrupting everything and changing whole industries and, and uh, changing how we communicate and live our lives. But it's really the soft skills that are going to be the most in demand in the future as everything else gets automated. Uh, and we just, I, I've done some work with Oracle on this. And what we found was that a manager's job is increasingly becoming more human and less machine because the machines are eating up all of those responsibilities, all the things that their hard skills and technical skills uh, were important for. I think that's great that it opens up more ability to be more creative, though. Do you, we're just, just not prepared for it? That's Is the it? issue. Okay. That's... It's, it's it, because the same technology that has increased the demand for the soft skills has also weakened the soft skills of upcoming generations. Mm. What soft skills in particular um, or do you think or, or are you finding that are in demand and, and what is it that people can be doing to really enhance that skill set that I, I call them the durability skills? Yeah. Most revolve around communication. I mean, yeah. communication's king. It's always kind of been king. It's just the way in which people communicate is different. And the thing that you know I'm writing about right now is how technology has hurt our empathy, mm. right? Because if you're just texting someone, are you okay? It's much different than seeing them and asking them if they're okay or calling them on the phone. It doesn't have the same effect. 
And people, through their overuse of technology, have become less empathetic. And that's bad, not just within companies, but it's bad in our culture and communities. Wow. So what, what can people do? What do you recommend? What is it, the, the advice? Because you're being hired by large scale, you know, the oracles of the world to go in and to present your research and to help them and say, hey, listen, here's the guidance. You know, if I'm right now the, the head of HR for Goldman Sachs or any other large organization, what, what would you tell me? I think it comes down to a blend. It's a blend of digital versus human. Mm-hmm. Just like the future is humans and robots working side by side very similar right and so it's understanding how to use the technology using it for the right purposes Mm -hmm. and making sure that you're not overusing it and it's not interfering in your objectives i'll give you a classic example so we found that the biggest thing that gets in the way of human to human contact in the workplace is email people rely so much on email yet one face-to-face conversation is more effective than 34 emails exchanged back and forth how many 34 34 and so instead of going back and forth and like hoping someone understands what you have to say you can pick up the phone and eliminate all of that annoying work it's so to piggyback that i just went back and forth there's a uh, i don't want to say the technology but there's a technology that i use with my company and the supports the support system i went back and i think on my last email i said this is our 40th email can you please pick up the phone and call me please pretty please you know, and through the, and I went back through the whole email trail. She picked, she called me on my 42nd email and we resolved the issue in three minutes. And, and to your point, so the amount of time that, that it, it took, the aggravation, you know, the lost productivity, think of the distractions of how much time, you know, to your point. Yeah. If you're on your third email, that should be feedback that your email is not translating. Yeah. And that you should do something else. Yeah. And I'm sure part of it was my fault too, but the but but to your point, so much better communication mono a mono. Yet if you're trying to remind a colleague to attend a meeting, a text makes perfect sense. So it really depends what you're trying to do. The objective matters when when it comes to communicating. So I'm not trying to say we should drop technology because it's not going to happen, but we should be more thoughtful about how, when, and where we're using it. Just like when I talk about flexibility, you get to work when, where, and how you want. Same with technology. It's a double-edged sword. So I interviewed 100 leaders for the, the top companies in the world, and that's what they said. They said it can be good or bad depending on how you're using it. Mm. And I think that having purpose be- behind our actions is so important, especially in a world that's so distracting and, and there's just so many options. So it's yeah. having purpose, knowing what you want, knowing what you have to achieve, and then choosing the right vehicle and the right way to express that, that information. Yeah, I think that's well That's well put. So total tangent, you just reminded me of something. I forgot which company it was, but I think this is great. What the, the president of this company instituted, or maybe the CEO, I don't remember, but that if you're late for a meeting, you're, I, kind of, I can't remember if it's their hourly rate, if they figured out there, you, you've got to pay the people in the meeting. You know, so say I'm worth, you know, say I'm a $200,000 salary, which comes out to $100 an hour, and say that you're late for my meeting and you're 15 minutes late, you know, that's a, you know, you've got that, you get docked accordingly. So, and it, it, what it's done, it's enhanced the productivity of their company so much because you can't, you know, you don't want to afford to, to do that. But in essence, that's what you're doing when you're late is you're, you're costing them the company money. So, so the money goes, doesn't go get paid to you, but it goes back into the kitty of the company. That and I think a lot of meetings are wasteful. Yeah. I think there's recent research that showed that people engage in meetings as a form of therapy. Tell, talk more about that. Let's hear it. As in they will start or join a meeting in order to feel better about their situation or, or get some of the, their questions answered as a way to feel, feel good or, or feel validated. Wow. Yeah. I hadn't heard that before, but that makes sense. Yeah, and I just think that these one-hour, these two-hour meetings can be very wasteful. Like, come with an agenda, make sure the phones are not anywhere close to you because so many people are physically there but not actually present because they're on their phone, right? It's this whole feeling that I talk about, about how you can be physically present but not mentally, spiritually, or emotionally because you're so plugged in. Like, 
we could be with each other, but if I'm on my phone just texting someone else who's not here, I'm I'm basically saying I care more about the person I'm texting than spending time with you because I'm not interacting with you. Now, I'm physically here, but because I'm not interacting with you, it's disrespectful and, and you know insulting to you. Yeah. So I was at an, uh, an event where one of the speakers, I forgot what their discipline was. They had some kind of doctor in psychology or something. And they said that when you go to a meeting, somebody, when you're at a lunch or a meeting or a table, and someone puts their phone on the table, just like I did um, right there, it's showing you on some level that that phone is more important to them than the conversation because that's the distraction, that's the focus. And the research shows that if your phone is within like a foot of where you are, you're immediately distracted. Like if my phone were like right on the ground over here, uh-huh. I'd be thinking of my phone and not of you because it's in sight. It's like within yeah. a certain amount of feet. Oh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's how powerful those devices are. And, and they, that, addiction is built into these devices. Now, is that addiction general? Like, is it heavily more in a, a millennial? Because I know that you're you're considered an expert in millennial. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I've so is that extensively. more for them or is that, it doesn't matter? My generation. Everyone. It doesn't, doesn't It's matter. everyone. Yeah. And... The thing is, the more you use the phone, the more you go on the apps, the more you use Google and Facebook and all of these big websites, the more money they make. So they've built addiction into their apps and websites and devices because that's how they make money. They make money off our attention. We're the product. Now, we might not have to pay for Facebook, but you're paying based on your time, attention, and and your data. So there's a cost to everything. There's no free lunch. And I think that people need to be more aware of that. Like, I know why I use these social networks. I know that on Instagram, I'm literally just trying to build my professional brand. On Facebook, it's more so of me messaging people rather than making updates. Maybe I'm supporting a cause. On LinkedIn, it's definitely professional. So it's there's a purpose behind why I'm using them. And I'm trying not to mix the personal and professional too much. Mm-hmm. But that's all intentional. Yeah. It's 12 years of, of thinking about how I'm using these technology tools. You are a very intentional person. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think everything you seem to have a very prescriptive way. I, I think that, like Jocko says, discipline equals freedom. And for me, it's like, I have a whole schedule about how I do things because that allows me to create efficiencies, which allows me to scale and take on new projects. Yeah. That to me is, has been the secret. It's like, otherwise you have to hire God knows how many employees to be able to pull it off. But if you get really good at your craft, if you have a good network of freelancers who are really good at what they do and they're doing the work that you don't want to do, and you can build up kind of like a, a rhythm to you know every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every year about how you go about doing things and set goals every year. I think you're in good shape. I only started setting goals in 2014, so before that, it was just I was just doing things. Hmm. But you were now, successful. but I feel like I'm more focused because I I kind of know what I'm doing, so I try and avoid things that are not uh, on my. New Year's resolutions. So, how much would you say are um, like goals versus habits? Would you say you're is it is it uh, you're more goal driven or are you more? Well, you I start off with goals and then I backtrack and form the habits to be able to achieve those goals. Give me give me some habits that you have that are some good habits that, that you've incorporated that you think everybody, you know, someone who's listening right now could incorporate. I mean, breaking. I mean, a habit is one of the most difficult things to break or create new ones, but if there are any that you could suggest. Yeah. My habits are Mm. I wake up early. I try and go to sleep early now. I wake up early. I know I'm a morning person, so I want to take advantage of the morning. Not everyone's a morning person, but because I know that about myself, I want to make sure I'm doing the the highest quality work and and doing the activities that I think require a, a lot of effort in the morning. So working out, I cook two to three meals a day in the morning for myself. And you are disciplined. And I do my writing in the morning. Very important because after lunch, the quality of my writing declines. So I want to make sure I'm doing that before lunch. Mm. And this is just self-awareness. Like I know when I'm good. I know when I my brain starts to shut off. And so I start to do a lot more of the research and the 
production of content and and, uh, different activities that I do after lunch that require a little bit less concentration. And then in the evenings, it's more about the networking, the, the being social, and then I just get into the rhythm of trying to replicate that every single day. But then I also look out. So with the New Year's resolutions, it's, you know, I want to travel to at least one new country a year. Like I want to do a certain amount of research studies. I have like a certain amount of work I want to accomplish in a year. And then I start to map it out. But it also has to be flexible because as you know, you know, you're in the third week of January and everything could change somehow. You just don't know. You you can't plan for certain things. But for what you can plan for, you need to build your calendar to reflect your resolutions to reflect your personal and professional life. And that's the thing that a lot of people don't do. Their calendar reflects their professional life, but not their personal life. Mm. And I think that as somebody who has to own their schedule, I've had to firsthand figure all that out. Like, who do I talk to when? Who do I plan to meet with? How can I construct a calendar that aligns with my entire life, not just work? And I think that that is very important to feeling fulfilled and what you know everyone in human resource circles talks about right now is the word fulfillment that is the word for 2020 people want to be fulfilled and fulfillment is across personal and professional so in order to do that you have to decide what's important to you what's not important to you and then be realistic with your goals based on what you've achieved in the past and how long that's taken and you, you know your network, your skill set, you know all those factors, and then lay out what you want to do in a given year. And what I try and do is I think about this like long term vision. And it's like, okay, what do I really? Where's this all going to go? And what seems to be there's two things in my career tra- trajectory that I've become very self aware to. One is that everything I'm doing is helping me grow with an audience. So. My goal is to help people from student to CEO. I want to help you across your entire path with all the problems you're going to incur. And the other thing is every book becomes more human. And in fact, this is my last book is yeah. Back to Human. I like that. Because my first book was about how to use technology to build your personal brand online. Me 2.0. Second book was Promote Yourself, How to Advance Within a Company. And it talked a lot about soft skills, so like 45 pages of soft skills. And then this is really saying we need to be more human in this age of technology because maybe we've gone too far. And the next book will probably be around mental health. And so I want to get deeper into more personal issues as I become more open to, to uh, my own issues or, or things that I've been feeling. And, 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 I, and there's actually one important thing to add. Okay. Doing something, performing action is your best compass to figure out what to do next. That's what I've learned. So anytime I'm, I don't want to ask myself, what am I doing next? I want the last thing to give me clues onto what I should do next. That's a good point. So I've, I've discovered this because I used to, it used to be a little bit more forced early in my career because I'm like, okay, like, what do I do next? And everyone's like, when's the next book? When's the next project coming out? And then I'm like, but wait a second, like, let me just experience what I'm experiencing right now. And maybe I'll learn about what makes sense for the next three to five years of my life. And so this whole focus on back to human and being human in the age of technology, that just came from all of my work on using technology to advance your career. That naturally progressed. Me thinking about helping people across every stage of their career, that only happened after the second book. Because I'm like, oh, wow, I just wrote a book for people who want to get ahead at work and want, and for people who want to get a job. Of course I have to write a leadership book. And I'm a leader now. So it's... So everything has to progress organically because then not only is it a better story to tell other people, but a good story to tell to yourself and it gets you really excited and, and continuing to follow that path and it feels natural. You don't want it to feel forced. So me talking about mental health, to me, that's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer because I feel like I'm a person that can be a strong mental health advocate and because what Back to Human taught me was that people are really suffering from a mental health crisis. And looking at the world, you're seeing you know companies hiring more and more therapists, uh, you know all sorts of companies. I've been talking to Starbucks, Cisco, Deloitte, Ernst and Young, Johnson and Johnson, Chipotle. They're companies that are investing in mental health programs. So we're we're reaching we're in a new world now where everyone suffers from mental health. You either have suffered in the past, are currently suffering, or interact with someone who does. So it affects everyone. Oh, the numbers are staggering. And I think that 
the first step in solving the not just the loneliness epidemic, but the mental health epidemic is to eliminate the stigma. So the more you talk about it, the more it empowers other people to stand up and, and say something. The first time I came out saying I was suffering from anxiety was so hard. But I was pushed to do it because I was an advocate without coming out with my own story. And so my friend was like, you better come out. And so I did this one big Instagram post and it and, uh, you know, got a lot of attention, a lot of comments because it's liberating to follow somebody who is suffering from something that you're suffering from. It's getting back to the relatability, even just like the author. You talked about being an author with Schwartzman. <laughs> you know, this is that's another thing to relate to. And if other people can connect with you on that, there's a higher probability that there's going to be other things that they're going to be more inclined. What you realize from interviewing a lot of people and having so many conversations <clears throat> is that they're just a person. But it takes a while. Like, in my early 20s, like when I was interviewing, like, Goldie Hawn, like my mom got excited. So it almost like makes them not human when people around you get excited. And, and when you've seen people on the big screen, let's say. And then just over time, you're just like, oh, it's just a person. They've had their own struggles. Everyone has their own struggles. We think people have it good and easy, but we don't live their life. That to me fascinates me. As in, you could see a billionaire and you're like, oh my God, their life's so easy. They don't have to worry about these 50 things but they have to worry about another 50 things that you don't know about because you don't live their life and they might not be talking about it. So like they're the target for everything. Yeah. You don't know who your friends are. People don't talk about that. There, there are some lonely You're a people. huge target and it's lonely at the top and it's true. The, uh, the grass is always greener until you have to cut it. Oh, I like that. <laughs> Two things before I forget them. One, I want to ask you, when I'm done with this first question, I want to come back to because you've talked about self-awareness and I think that's so important and a lot of people are not self-aware and we know this for fact and there's a, a gal by the name of Dr. Tasha. You, I forgot her last name, but I'm, I'm going to send you her link. I think it's a great, she's got a great tool where people can, uh, what, what happens is you send it to other people that know you well and they tell you about, you know, you fill it out for each other. So if we knew each other really well, I'd fill it out on your behalf. You'd fill it out on my, my mind. And it's really enlightening. Um, and Adam Grant's done a lot of work on, on the self-awareness and how uh, you know, the people that feel that they're the most self-aware are usually the least self-aware and things of that nature. So I want to talk about that. But one other thing before we get into that is you've interviewed you know 2,200 people and counting. And you know of those 2,200 people, probably... Uh, 2,199 of them were pretty wildly successful people, and uh, it's taken a lot to, to you know, uh, a lot of the things that you've talked about in order to get in front of some of these people, the work ethic, the relationships, the determination, the creativity, all of these kinds of things. What have you, you know, if you could kind of boil down some of the things that you've garnered from some of these conversations with top people, what have been some of your biggest takeaways? And I know that's a really, I probably opened Pandora's box there, but. My favorite one actually is one of the more recent ones. It was the most successful podcast I've done. Really? So I've only podcasted for like a few years. I used to have another, a different podcast, but for five questions with Dan Shabell, it's, it's, you know, I'm at 63 episodes so far. And it was David Brooks. That So I ask every single person, what's your best piece of career advice? And some give one piece of advice and some give three, like David. But his advice was really interesting. T tell people who he is in case they don't know who He's he is. He's a New York Times op-ed contributor, Republican, very outspoken, very successful author. His latest book is The Second Mountain. And it's more or less about how his first quote-unquote mountain was to be very successful in his career, but then his second mountain was to have a f like great friendships and a, and you know a loving wife and whatnot. And so he learned the importance of relationships through the book. So very relevant to Back to Human and everything yeah. I talk about. So I was interested in talking with him, of course. And he said to build identity capital. So this was very interesting and. The first person I think who has built incredible identity capital without thinking about it probably when he was younger is Jay Shetty. So he was a monk for three years. That's what David would say is identity capital, meaning that in, yourself? in every conversation, whether it's an interview, whether it's a business pitch, whatever you do in your life, whether you're on a date, you can always bring up the fact that you are a former monk and it makes you interesting in any setting. That's identity capital. 
It's something you can leverage in conversations to make you interesting, to spark a conversation that could tr- could translate into a job. It could translate into, you know, a potentially, a, you know, a husband or a wife. And to me, that's very interesting. Because if I would go back in time, if I had that advice when I was younger, I would have put more thought into that. Like, what would make someone interesting? Maybe you've traveled to 50 countries. Like, it's got to be something very unique to be identity capital. So I, I actually, I think that I haven't heard that before, but I, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I'll tell you some interesting uh, examples. So I used to own an executive search firm um, that catered to the Wall Street community. And I, I cannot begin to tell you how many people either got interviews or the subject of their conversation during their interviews were more about their personal interests and hobbies then, you know, so to your point about identity, I mean, there's, I, I know a um, guy who runs a trading floor and he's obsessed with hiring people that worked in uh, like flipping burgers at ski slopes or whatever, or being bartenders or something like that, because the stress of people yelling and having to multitask and doing all these things, like he, he, he knows what that's all about. And that's what he wants to talk about. He wants to hear about that yeah. experience. I've also studied in a, a former study several months ago. Uh, it was called focused around upskilling and we studied the non-traditional hires very hot topic right now like more and more companies are hiring retirees they're hiring people who don't have a four-year college degree Uh, they're hiring veterans foreign workers they're hiring prisoners uh, former prison inmates yep not as much as some of the others but it's happening Mm -hmm. and for better or worse I mean there's issues with that about cheap you know labor and whatnot and yeah. slavery and whatever but i think that in today's world with a big skills gap companies are more apt to hire people who are not cookie cutter you know it's like when i was in college you know the big four accounting firms we just constantly hire from bentley because it's just more of the same but now the big four are saying hey we'll hire people who don't have a four-year college degree and while that might not be the most common hire right now the fact that it's happening shows you that there's a talent shortage and now in order to expand the talent pool in companies that they're looking past the typical requirements which is i think very healthy and and smart like i mean you said your friend is hiring you know people who flip burgers i think we need to look beyond who we would normally look to for a hire any organizations that you've worked with that you've seen that they've made a conscious effort to this and they've found some good gems well i haven't heard about the good gem portion i just know that like ernst and young pwc a lot of the accounting firms are usually forward-looking when it comes to talent because they buy and sell talent i mean that's (laughs) that is their their model (laughs) so they have to be at the forefront and about 80 or so percentage of their workforce are millennials and gen z's so like in order to you know in order to be at the forefront in order to be very innovative they have to be very thoughtful about you know the feedback they get from employees and and the type of uh, learning and development programs they have and and just overall they have to yeah, Ernst & Young, I think, recently came out and was promoting not having a degree. Yeah. Like that was, uh, um, I feel like I read something a few months ago about that. They're behind that, which is pioneering. Yeah. And especially of a, an organization that large and of that caliber. You know, they went out on a limb. Yeah, it's really interesting. A lot of people don't know this, but since I've studied this for a decade, what I've seen is that the skills gap, and when I say skills gap, it means we have a, a you know a talent shortage in a lot of different sectors. So there's over seven million unfilled jobs in America, yet the unemployment rate is I think three point four percent. Right, so people don't have the skills to fill these jobs, and that's stunting corporate growth. So I mean, the stock market is doing well; companies are more profitable than ever before. But could you imagine if? You know, we had a 0% unemployment rate and there wasn't 7 million job openings. There was none. I mean, it would be a whole different economy. Yeah, but what about uh, under, uh, what's that term, where you're working below your, you know, so say you've got an MBA, but you're doing a remedial. Underemployment. Yeah, underemployment. What are your What are your thoughts there? I, I think it's a big problem mm-hmm. because colleges promote those numbers for their placement rates without yes, breaking it I'm out. Yes, with that. Yeah. yeah, and it's because it's not really calculated in the BLS underemployment yeah. right they're they're counted as being employed persons so i do agree i but i think that i think that those people probably have skills that are not accounted for and 
might not have the support to get some of the jobs that they could get yeah. because they might not have the wide networks that that'll enable them to. But I think that also technology is a platform that gives people a shot to be able to connect with people. And the biggest mistake people make, there was I remember there was an article in the New York Post about this woman who sent her resume to 1,400 employers and got no interviews. And that just reiterated something I've told people for years. It's have a focused approach. Like I just wanted to work at EMC, so I put everything into working at EMC and I got a job there. You went there, you went to eight months. Burn the boat. Eight months. I was like pledging a fraternity, <laughs> trying to get a job there. That's how I compare it to. It was yeah. really hard. But I think that's with everything. For me, it's I, I always wanted to go to Bentley. I always wanted to get an internship at Reebok. I always wanted to work for EMC. I've always wanted to do certain things and I'm all in. And I think that when you have a focused approach and you really want to do something, you're more likely to get it. So I agree. And, and an employer, I don't mean to cut you off, and an employer is more likely to want to bring you on because you're more likely to work hard for the company and stay longer because you're already showing that you have a positive attitude, you're passionate, you have the work ethic, and, and you, you are, are almost a customer of the company already. Agree with every single point that you have, and it brings me back to the other question that I wanted to put on pause because I think it boils back to that. And I think that a lot of people, they don't know what they want. And so, so I want to talk about self-awareness and I'll, and I'll tell you why. That's my best advice too, is where you're going with this. Yeah. So, By far. Yes. So, and I'll tell you what, it was really interesting getting back again. I'm sorry to make this about me, but when we did this, when I had this recruiting, what happened is when the, when the, I've been through two recessions. And what I've noticed is that a lot of times when people are getting laid off, you know, listen, there are some times that are, things are just completely out of your control. And the people that couldn't get jobs afterwards, it's not that they weren't good or they, you know, they just, what happened is they got a job because maybe their mom or their dad hooked them up and yeah. maybe they got into an industry or a friend and, you know, they progressed, they, they rode the wave, you know, and they're just good performers and maybe they made a certain amount of money, but it wasn't, they weren't passionate maybe they weren't as excited to get into emc and they didn't work as hard or they weren't they didn't throw themselves full boat and as a result the people that did when the time to trim the fat those people stuck around the other people those people that were law you know they didn't have the jobs they didn't have the networks so they were kind of had to reinvent themselves and that's a harder thing to do later in life and that's a skill you need to know nowadays you need to be agile you need to be able to do that but where i'm going with that is that they might not have been, they might have gotten lucky because of graduating at a certain time or there were some, you know, again, Gladwell, as we talked about before, there's certain things that filter into the luck pool, if you will. But if they weren't self-aware to know this isn't a passion of mine or this is, might not be something that I'm good at or this might not have some longevity. Yeah. So I'd love to get back to. What's interesting is I used to have mantras. So is it, you could talk, it's like mindsets, right? Yeah. Like. One of my mantras when I was at EMC was, I need to set myself up for success. Like, I would, like, say this out loud, and my manager was like, oh, I like that. Like, so I would always say that to myself. And what I meant by setting myself up for success was I would do the work way before it was due. And I I did that in college, actually. So I would never be a crammer. I would be studying a week before, so that the night before, it was just a reminder. And it's the same thing for everything I do still, but it was a mantra. I think mantras are great because it's like uh, you're almost rallying yourself to think and do certain things in, in a certain way. And it can be very motivating and helpful for sorting things out in your life and, and creating processes and, and habits that are healthy. So how do people, you know, if they're listening, what do you recommend they do? You know, there are so many people, you know, again, again, I'm forgetting the numbers, but it's like 67% of people are actively not happy in their roles. Yeah. You know? No, yeah, they're, it's, it's very high. The numbers are staggering. So even in this great employment that we're going through where they have more options, they're just, they're not happy. That's why, you know, I teach people, a lot of times people say, hey, what do you do? And that's like their starting questions. I say, dodge that one like the plague because that's going to elicit a negative emotion that you don't want to bring up in a conversation. So yeah. stay away from that, you know? But anyway, so so my point is, what do people do that aren't happy? What? How do they become self-aware? What do you recommend that they do? How do they figure, how do they, you know, you were in a way fortunate that you knew early to to have these mantras, to, to you knew that you wanted to work at Reebok and EMC and... and I, I, you know, I just thought, it was the right decision at the right time. Hmm. I didn't know what it was going to lead to, 
my best advice is the advice that I took myself was do as much as you can as early in your career as possible because then you figure out what you like, what you don't like, what you're good at, what you're not good at. It is self-awareness. Self self-awareness happens through experiences. And so I had so many experiences that I'm like, okay, I want to work at a big company that's a brand name. I want to work with people who are very motivated. I want to work locally in this area. So I could I filtered the type of company I want to work down to EMC because I had all of those different experiences at all the different size companies with different managers and different industries. And I was like, okay, where can I make a lot of money? Who recruits for my school? Who's big enough? You know, what could be a good platform to start my career? I started to... You were your own think, personal guidance I counselor. Li- I, I think I'd be a pretty good guidance counselor too because I think being a good guidance counselor is about having empathy and like realizing, okay... What worked for me might not work for you, but let me kind of figure, help you figure yourself out by asking the right questions, which is probably why I got into interviewing because I only get five questions when I interview someone, so they have to be really good. Actually, only four, because the last question is, what's your best piece of career advice? So I have to be very thoughtful for those four and have to like really dig in and read all the material and see all their other interviews that they've done and think of, okay, how can I... Uh, humanize this person and then extract the best of what they have to offer for this audience. That's all I'm thinking about when I do interviews um, because I don't have much time. So I'm just trying to get the best of what I can. So with Adam Grant, I mean, I, I mean, maybe it was like eight minutes long, but I'm trying to get the best I can out of him uh, in the time that he has. And it's, I think it's partially out of the respect I have for the other person. I'm like, people value their time. They don't have much time. Maybe, you know, they're doing me a favor by being there. So I'm going to be very thoughtful about what I ask and the amount of time I spend with them. I'm always like that. I always try and put myself in their shoes. Like, okay, you know, what could they get out of this? And and how could I make this work? And that does it for part one of my conversation with Dan Chabelle. Next week, we'll release part two where Dan talks about the art of making introductions. And he'll tell us the five questions he would ask himself if he was a guest on the podcast. Thanks for listening to Conversations with Connors, a network-wise podcast. If you or someone you know is looking for a career change, building a business, seeking to expand sales, or is just generally interested in improving your overall health and happiness, then head on over to networkwise.com to gain access to a plethora of resources to help you build your networking skills and community. Those who are ambitious will network. The ones who succeed will network wise.